Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we always open in prayer because it's important to ask the Lord to give us guidance and direction as we study his word It is through God the Holy Spirit that we are able to uh, learn and assimilate the Word of God into our life. It is through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that he fills our soul, the Scripture says, with the Word of God. According to Ephesians 5.18, we're commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. But whenever we sin, whenever we violate God's Word, violate God's character in any way that breaches or breaks our fellowship with him and Uh, So God has provided a basis for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to recover fellowship, and that is simply through confession of sin. Confession is to be in privacy to God the Father in silent prayer. Whenever we confess our sins, we're immediately restored to fellowship, and we recover that ongoing sanctifying ministry described as walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, all of these different terms that are used in Scripture, walking in the light, abiding in Christ, all of these relate to each other. And in that state of fellowship, when God the Holy Spirit is working, this is when uh, spiritual growth can take place. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word has been revealed down through the ages, through the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, and it is your word that gives guidance and direction to our lives. It is your word that transforms our thinking, that we may think about life as you would have us think about life. We can think in terms of reality and not think in terms of the various fantasies and various Uh, wrong ideas that we uh, rationalize on our own and that we buy into due to the influence of others. It is only on the basis of your word defined as truth that we can rightly align our thinking to reality, which is the way things are as you've created them. Father, as we study today, we pray that we might take the principles that we study, that they'll shape our thinking, shape our responses to situations in life, and that we may come to have a greater, fuller understanding of how you are working 
in our lives and in history in a broader sense that we may uh, be able to uh, honor and glorify you in the way we respond to difficulties, tragedies, uh, suffering in our own life, and that we may be used by you to be a uh, source of encouragement, strength to others around us who may be going through difficult times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Often, as I pointed out last time, when people are overwhelmed with the presence of sorrow, suffering, or injustice in the world, a question that is often raised is the question, how can God let this happen? And if you listen to the subtext of that question, there is a clear assigning of blame or responsibility to God that somehow God's not watching, God's not looking. How can a loving or caring God really let these kinds of things happen to his creatures, to humanity on a broad sense and to me in a more general or specific sense? And I pointed out last time that in a broader sense, this is a question that underlies the doctrine or teaching that we find in Revelation chapter 7. Last time, as we began to focus on this question, I pointed out that at the end of, as we went into chapter 6, we become aware of the first series of judgments that will take place during the tribulation period. As we come to the end of that chapter, we see this great mass of unbelieving humanity that is trying to hide from the judgment of God. By this point in the tribulation period, which is somewhere in the first uh, 18 to 24 months, the unbelievers are recognizing that these judgments are coming from God. They uh, define it as as the wrath coming from the throne of God and wrath or judgment coming from uh, the Lamb. They, the judgments are so severe, the judgments from death, a third of the, or a quarter of the earth's population uh, dies during this period. There's famine, there's warfare, there is a tremendous number of uh, martyrs de- uh, developed during this age as the world system blames Christians for all of the problems and then the concluding sixth seals we saw has these geophysical disturbances, and there are so many that are killed during this time, and life is not going to be anything like what people thought it would be. The infrastructures that have that provide people with the security from day to day are going to be pretty much obliterated during this time period. All of the things that we take for granted, electricity, uh, computers, all of the things related to technology, uh, transportation, all these things are going to uh, be dis- pretty much destroyed by these judgments, leaving man in a state uh, of absolute chaos, and it's only going to get worse. So we, we have seen that the uh, those who are surviving at the end of the, just this first series of judgments are portrayed in verses 16 and 17 as as saying, Fall on us to the mountains and to the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? 
And it's that last question, who is able to stand? Who, what they're really asking is, is who can survive all of this? Who is it that can go through all of these, these unprecedented cataclysms, these, these horrors that come about on the uh, face of the earth and that are worldwide, that, that far surpass anything that we've ever seen in human history? Who's able to stand? In other words, who is able uh, to survive? And the seventh chapter is going to answer that question. And one thing we have to understand as we go into that is just the importance of the terminology here, that there is a recognition within the, this, this situation uh, that by the use of the term wrath, there's a recognition that this is an enactment of God's justice or judgment on the earth. The term wrath uh, refers to the justice of God, the outpouring of God's judgment in time. This happens in nat- nations, it happens to individuals, and it happens in an intensified way during the tribulation period. The term wrath is used 11 times in the book of Revelation, and one time it refers to the devil's uh, wrath or anger, but the rest of the time it refers to the wrath of the Lamb or the wrath of God, which is the outpouring of God's judgment. So the question that these unbelievers ask is, who can survive? The answer is going to be given in the seventh chapter. The answer involves two groups of people, the 144,000 who were sealed, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the second group are the group of martyrs from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. If you notice... We get into this, but notice it now that there are two groups of people that are the focal point of chapter 7. God's grace in salvation to a group of Jews and God's grace in salvation to Gentiles. Jews are mentioned first, Gentiles are mentioned second. This fits the pattern of to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, but it also shows a returned focus in the tribulation period to God's plan for Israel. Romans 9, 3 talks about the fact that to Israel still, even though they are in rebellion, to Israel still, to the Jews, belong the promises and the covenants. And God has not forgotten those. So this uh, beginning of chapter 7 emphasizes the Jewish character of the tribulation period. So the first question that is asked, the literal question in the text, is who can stand, who can survive? The answer is, well, there are going to be an untold number. There's going to be this specific number of 144,000 sealed uh, Jewish evangelists, and then there's going to be another group of Gentiles from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the earth. But that raises a second question. If there are going to be so many... Remember I pointed out that the here you have a set number, 144,000. You have 200 million mentioned later on in Revelation. You have other large numbers. But the number of martyrs in Revelation chapter 7 is said to be without number, innumerable, uncountable. So it's a, it's a tremendous, tremendously large number of Christians that will be martyred, that will be killed because they are Christians during the tribulation period. 
And if you think about that just a little bit, that means that there are going to be an untold number of people coming to faith, to trust in Christ as Savior within the tribulation period. Remember, we're now in the church age, the age that extends from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples in Jerusalem to the rapture of the church, which occurs at some un, uh, undescribed time in the future. We don't know when it will be. It is could happen at any moment. It's, it's imminent, but it's uncertain. It could happen at any time. Once the church is raptured, it will go into a transition period until the beginning of the tribulation period. We don't know how long that will be. But during the tribulation period, you will have vast numbers of people, Jews and Gentiles, trusting in Christ as Savior. And they will be going through these sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. So a question that underlies this is that question we began to, I began to focus on last time. How can a loving God pour out his wrath on his creatures or on believers? This is a question that is often raised in just personal experiences. People suddenly encounter some uh, loss or hardship or difficulty, whether it's being without a job, whether it's a financial difficulty, whether it's a result of some sort of meteorological calamity, such as hurricanes or tropical storms or a number of other things, or, or whether it has to do with a health crisis. There's various things that come into our lives, and we begin to wonder, well, as we pray about this and nothing seems to happen, is God really paying attention, and is God really good, or is God even in control? And sadly, what happens when these questions start being asked is that the answer that comes from the uh, unbelieving world is that God is not really a good God. If he were good, he would not allow this evil to take place. And if he is good, he certainly can't be very much of a God. He can't be very much in control because if he were in control, then again, he wouldn't allow this uh, evil to take place. And this has... Um, taken uh, form in several uh, publications that have hit the uh, popular market in recent years. An older work that came out, I believe, in the late 80s by uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, I referred to last time, entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And Kushner's answer is the answer that uh, many people give, and that is, well, God's just unable to do anything about this. It's, it's beyond his control. Uh, Recently, another book has come out. I've seen it on the bookshelves at Barnes & Noble and a few other places uh, by Bart Ehrman, and it's entitled God's Problem, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. Now, this is a particularly interesting book because Bart Ehrman is a, uh, a liberal skeptic who we will be rubbing shoulders with in heaven, so he'll get straightened out again. But he is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and he is a uh, was raised or reared. My mother used to say, always tell me, "You raise hell, you rear children." I got to keep that straight. Uh, that you are 
he was reared in a conservative, Bible-believing home, and until a personal crisis occurred in his 30s, uh, he held to conservative views of the Scripture. But in the context of personal crises, as well as um, his negative volition, ultimately rejecting the truth of Scripture, he reversed himself so that he no longer believes in that that Christianity is anything other than just a a legend or a myth, that Jesus is nothing more than uh, fiction, and that there are no answers in the Bible. See, anybody can uh, end up turning against God just because it's up to volition, despite training, despite background, despite other things. So that's uh, one of the latest in just a series of volumes that have come out over the years by different uh, religious leaders, professors, who claim that, uh, that God's just not able to handle things. But biblically, we know that that's, that God does handle things. God is in control and that there is a purpose to suffering. Now, last time, I started off to, by giving you just sort of a framework to think about this question of how, why God allows uh, evil and suffering in the world, how, and to begin to think through the answer to this question, why a good God can allow evil and suffering and bad things to happen to good people. And I pointed out that there, there are... Uh, there are four things that four questions that we need to uh, that we need to address, and these four things are first of all the nature of God, in terms of His essence. We looked at that last time. Second, the nature of evil and suffering. Ultimately, whenever you read these skeptics, they have an inadequate view both of God and of evil and suffering. Third, the nature of justice, and that nature of justice has to start with the character of God and his judicial outworking. So these three really hang together, and I just uh, touched on each of these last time in the uh, attempt to give uh, an overview of what we need to be thinking about. I didn't get to the fourth one because we had a congregational meeting last time, so I didn't uh, get to spend much time on that other than to simply state that history does have a purpose. God is working things out, and we must understand that uh, he allows evil and suffering to continue and to operate because in his omniscience he knows all the facts and he is going to bring things to an ultimately to a righteous conclusion. So, in trying to state this in terms of a single proposition, I've written it out this way, that God's character, that is, his righteousness, justice, love, in some his integrity, his goodness, uh, God's character is demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time. Evil is allowed to continue for a time. This, of course, will entail injustice and suffering. We are living in a fallen world, what the Bible calls the cosmic system. We are living in a fallen world, in a fallen universe. Things are 
imperfect. People are fallen. People have a sin nature which predisposes them to uh, self-centeredness, to arrogance, to uh, promoting that which is best for them over against anybody else. And in any sitting or any setting like that, of course, you're going to have all kinds of conflict. So that because evil is real and evil exists, as long as evil exists, there will be uh, conflict, there will be suffering, there will be adversity. And this does not mean that God is out of control, but it does mean that in his omniscience he knows more than creatures do, and he is able ultimately to resolve evil, and we have to go back to his character to understand that and to rest in that. So God's character, to summarize it without the uh, side explanation, God's character is demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time, that last phrase emphasizes the fact that it is temporary. There is, in all of eternity, all of human history is just going to be like a drop of water in the ocean. In order, this last phrase states the purpose, in order for God to fully judge evil and end suffering. The per- first part of this statement is designed to emphasize that no matter how out of control circumstances in our lives may appear or uh, how profound the injustice may be, God is still in control. His character does not change. So the first part emphasizes God's control, that he has not lost control. And then the second part, highlighted in yellow with the purpose clause, indicates that there is a reason that we may not fully understand because we are finite. We don't have all the data. We only have a small portion of the data, and too often we're, we're caught up in our own little world, our own little environment, our own suffering, our own uh, situation, and we think that Uh, That gives us enough information to be able to judge God. But God knows all the facts. He, in in his omniscience, he knows every detail. He doesn't drop any details. He doesn't become distracted and focus on something else. But he has a purpose to finally and completely judge and remove evil and suffering. And he does this through the context of human history. And God is the original multitasker because he is omniscient and omnipotent. He is able to work all of these things, all of the details in history together for good. That's Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That doesn't say that all things are good, but that God in his omnipotence And God in his omniscience is able to work all things uh, together for good so that there is an ultimate purpose for this. And there have been various answers given to this down through the ages within uh, philosophy as they study the problem of evil. And that is usually expressed as something, a Latin term called the summum bonum. There is an ultimate good an ultimate righteousness that is achieved in a, by allowing evil and suffering to continue. Now, last time I pointed out that to work our way through this, we have to look at the, the uh, nature of God and his essence. And this 
focuses on uh, the four key attributes, his righteousness, his love, his justice, and truth. Of course, we uh, that's his integrity, but we don't leave out his omniscience or omni, omnipotence either. But this is the focal point that God is righteous, therefore all that he does is righteous, so that what God does in his plan for working out the details related to evil and suffering must are, are righteous, but it is not contrary to his love because God also puts his uh, the focus of his uh, of his attention on his love for his creatures, and that means that he has to resolve the sin and evil problem, and it's done in a way that completely conforms to his righteousness and his justice. Now we I pointed out last time also that. Uh, we have to understand this thing of evil and suffering, that evil isn't simply the absence of good. Uh, theologians have, a, have a, a, a term for that, and it relates to just, it's a very passive idea that, that uh, uh, sin is just the, this absence of good, the lack of righteousness, but evil is much more than that. There is something uh, substantive when it comes to the nature of evil. Justice is not something that is creaturely oriented or circumstantially oriented, but is related to the absolute standard of God's own righteousness. So evil and suffering have to do with a violation of God's righteousness and a promotion of an agenda and a standard that is contrary to God's own righteousness. Justice then is the outworking of God's uh, righteousness in his dealings with his creatures. And all of this then fits within the fourth point, which is the divine purpose of history. So before we get into any more details in chapter 7, I want to review the divine purpose of history for you because these details that we see in chapter 7 fit in a remarkable way with our understanding of God's purpose for history in relationship to the angelic conflict. So just in terms of review, we have to understand first and foremost that when God cre- began to create, he had a plan and a purpose in mind. God is not just uh, sitting up there willy-nilly saying, let's see what happens if I do this. God is omniscient and omnipotent. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he had a plan and a purpose in his omniscience. He knows all of the knowable, and so he knew what all of the permutations of possibilities would be throughout anything that he did, and so he sets the creation a certain way, a specific way, in order to bring about his his purposes. The first thing that he did in history in terms of creation that we know of was that he created uh, an, a vast number of immaterial creatures that the Bible calls angels. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words for angels uh, relate to the idea of messengers. So that indicates some function or purpose that they had in carrying out uh, God's uh, operations within the universe. So he created the universe then. After that, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we know from uh, Job 
47, that when God laid the foundation for the earth, all of the sons of God, a term for angels, all of the angels sang for joy. That tells us that there's no division yet. There's no uh, satanic rebellion yet. There's no fallen angels yet. All the angels united together sing a heavenly chorus, praising God when he lays the foundation of the earth. So, uh, they're already in existence before he creates the universe. So you have the creation of the angels first and then the universe. But something happens at, at this point. If we were um, going to be writing this as a symphony, all of a sudden we'd start hearing the bass note and we would start hearing the vibrations as you uh, hear something foreboding on the scenes. And that's what we see in the language of Genesis 1-2. And the earth uh, became without a form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And these terms that are used, it's not just one, it's not just without form and void, it's not just darkness, it's not just deep, it is the uh, collection of those three terms together, which usually have negative connotations in other parts of Scripture indicating that which is related to evil and judgment. It is the three taken together uh, give this sense of foreboding that something negative has happened, something destructive has happened, that the universe as God created it in Genesis 1-1 is no longer uh, what it was. And so what would have occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 would be the fall of this creature that we call Satan. Now, his original name was Lucifer. We Learn that from Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verses 12 through 14. There are two great passages that describe the rebellion of this creature, Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, 12 to 17. This creature reached a point of self, uh, self-absorption where he decided he wanted the glory that went to God. He thought that he could do everything that God did. God had created him as the highest and most gifted, most talented of all of his creatures. He had uh, abilities beyond any of the other angels. He was the most beautiful, the most powerful, and he was in a position uh, at the head of all of the angels, according to the Ezekiel 28 uh, passage. And he uh, voiced in his soul the... Uh, pride that he felt, and this is described in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, where it's part of a lament that, are, uh, that is taken up against uh, the, actually it's a, this is what is called a, a proleptic prophecy. It looks forward to something that is said referring to something that happened in the past, and it relates back to the original fall of this creature, and it begins, how you have fallen from heaven O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. This is how the uh, modern translations usually translate the Hebrew here. The original Hebrew is Halel ben Shahar, which could be translated shining one sun of the dawn. It is uh, a term that alludes to the brilliance, the brightness of the uh, morning star Venus coming up over the horizon uh, doesn't have the brilliance of the sun. It is secondary, and so there's certain um, uh, connotations there. 
But in the Latin, this was translated as Lucifer, and that's what was brought over into the English. And so uh, I like to refer to him primarily as Halel ben Shahar because it's uh, related to the Hebrew. And doesn't some people will say, well, it's not Lucifer. That's not a, really a name here. And Lucifer is really a little bit confusing. I don't know how they got that out of the original. But this is the name of the creature. And he has said in his heart, verse 13, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God is a term for angels. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Uh, This is a term, an idiom that would have come out of pagan mythology because it is in Mount Zaphon that in the north in Syria that was comparable within Canaanite Syrian mythology uh, to be like Mount Olympus, the domain of the gods. And many people, myself including, believe that a lot of these gods and goddesses and personages and mythology are based loosely upon a residual memory in mankind related to the fall of the angels. And so this phrase, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of of the north, is simply an idiom for I will rule over the angels. There's a a common theme through this, these I wills. And verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, also a term related to God. He's often represented by the presence of a cloud, a pillar of cloud. And then finally, I will make myself like the Most High. So this is Satan's desire, is to rule over all of creation instead of God. He thinks he can do it better than God can do it. And as we go through the scriptures, we realize that he led a rebellion among the angels and influenced a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. All of this happens before man is ever created before we ever get into the six-day creation week of Genesis 1, verses 2 and following. But God judges the angels. Our evidence for that is in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, where it states that, uh, that God has created the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. Jesus makes this statement. So if, if God has already created the lake of fire for the devil and his angels, Why aren't they there? And so at this point, we have to use our thinking in terms of all the details that Scripture gives us related to this rebellion, the person of Satan, the outworking of things related to the angels. And it is inferred uh, logically, but with tremendous justification, that apparently God postponed the execution of that penalty in order to demonstrate certain truths related to creatures and their service to God. It is inferred sometimes that, or expressed sometimes, that Satan must have challenged God's character. Something of that sort took place. At any rate, it raises the question, how can, it raises several questions, how can a loving God send his creatures to such a horrible punishment, eternity in a lake of fire. This seems like the punishment far surpasses the extent of the crime. And so one question that is raised is that about how can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire? Uh, How can we have such a harsh penalty? 
And another would be, why doesn't God just give the devil a chance to see what he can do in running the universe? All of these ideas are present within God's demonstration of his justice and righteousness throughout history. And that is exactly what God does. He creates mankind as an experiment in the classic definition of the term experiment. Uh, Classically, an experiment is not something you do to see what will happen. An experiment is done in order to demonstrate a known truth. I remember, you have similar memories, I'm sure, going to uh, the lab in chemistry and uh, you would take uh, certain elements and blend them together and you would observe certain reactions. And it was always the same reaction. When you got ready to perform the experiment, you knew exactly what was going to happen unless something uh uh, something untoward happened or somebody had messed with the chemicals. That's what happened my second week in college in basic chemistry. We were taking, I forget what the chemical ingredients are now, but we were doing the simple experiment where you take, I think it's potassium permanganate and something else, you mix it, heat it over a flame, and it, it releases um, it releases oxygen in the test tube, and then you take your uh, little... Uh, a uh, piece of wood, balsam wood or something like that, and you uh, light it on fire, blow it out so it's just a burning ember, and then as you pass it over the test tube, as oxygen's related, oxygen burns and it flames up, and so you can demonstrate that. We did it in high school chemistry, you do it in college chemistry, everybody knows what's going to happen. It's demonstrating a known truth so that you learn, except on this first week of class, there was some sort of impurity in the chemicals, and uh, I was in a position, I think I was standing here at my desk, and just to my left, the instructor was standing uh, with his back to me, or actually I was at his side, and he was performing the experiment. And just as he got ready to do it, he looked up and he said, this is a second week of class. Some of you still don't have your goggles. I was one of them. Uh, you need to leave the classroom. So I just grabbed my books and walked out the door, and I didn't get around the door, and there was this enormous explosion. Blew three of his fingers off, and I would have caught, you know, all the shrapnel probably in my stomach, so that was the plan of God for me not to have my goggles that day. But anyway, the experiment is is to demonstrate a known truth. Now, it didn't work that day because something else was introduced into the experiment. But what God is doing in history does not introduce any wrong elements because of his omniscience. He knows exactly what will be demonstrated. And what is demonstrated is that the creature cannot ever do anything independent of the, cre- of the creator without causing incredible damage. And the unintended consequences are far more severe than the act itself. And the act of disobedience that was the issue in the Garden of Eden was just eating a piece of fruit, which nobody puts on their list of the ten most evil things you can do uh, in life. Except when they ate that piece of fruit, it was that simple, innocuous uh, act of disobedience to the Creator, And the result we see around us, wars and famines and disease and uh, all manner of suffering and adversity. And so this all comes out of that simple act 
of disobedience to the Creator. What God is demonstrating is in history through all the various dispensations is no matter what the circumstances might be, no matter how much God provides or how little God provides, no matter how much revelation or how little revelation man has, that sin permeates everything and it creates a vast host of unintended consequences and the only thing that can prevent it is total dependence upon God. And that's what God is demonstrating in history. And eventually what God has to do is bring this to a judicial resolution, which is what the the entire book of Revelation is describing, is how God brings evil and justice to account in the final judgments described in the book. And then we have a creation of a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sin and evil and there will never be an introduction of sin and evil. And sin and evil have been judged and punished and restricted to the lake of fire. And so God has a plan and a purpose in all of this. And he is demonstrating all the various permutations. I believe that when we get to heaven, when it's all over with and we can sit down and start asking the Lord a lot of questions about why did you allow this and why did you allow that, what we will come to understand is that God wanted to demonstrate this principle of absolute and total dependence upon him. And to do that, he goes through history and every possible uh, connotation, permutation of any, any alternative option will have been explored. And in every one of these, it will, cont- it will always end up in unintended consequences, crisis, catastrophe, cataclysm, and the, it's all caused by a creature disobeying uh, the creator. And so this is what God is doing in history. So history, human history, is directly related to the outworking of this angelic rebellion that began with Satan's rebellion against God in in eternity past before Genesis 1-2. This is why when we come to to Revelation, we see this uh, tremendous emphasis on angelic involvement. There are some 65 references to angels, the word angelos, in the book of Revelation out of approximately 170 in the entire New Testament. So uh, more than one-third of the references to angels in the New Testament are found in the book of Revelation. And outside of eight of those references, which describe the angels of the seven churches at the beginning of the book, the rest of them all uh, some, uh, what is that, about 58, 59 of them all occur within the tribulation period except for one or two that come up in the millennial and post, uh, post-millennial period. So that brings us to a place where we can understand and appreciate what happens when we look at, he, at uh, Revelation chapter 7. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Now, the scene has shifted. The scene in chapter chapter 6 was primarily on the earth. 
Uh, you have to think of this in terms of, I think if you think of it in terms of a movie, we, we have various scene shifts that take place. Chapter 6, even though it begins with the lamb opening up the seals in heaven, the, the focal point is really on what takes place on the earth. When we come to chapter 7, we shift back to a heavenly perspective. Uh, John begins, verse 1, saying, after this. And uh, it indicates from his statement here, after this, it's not after this chronologically, so that the events of chapter 7 are following chapter 6 chronologically, but he sees another vision. He says, after this I saw. So he sees one thing in chapter 6, and now we're going to a different scene in chapter 7. And the events in chapter 7 occur roughly at the same time as the events in chapter 6. So that what we see in chapter 6 is the outworking of these judgments over approximately a 20 to 24-month period. And then we see in chapter 7 what is taking place uh, at the heavenly level that is contemporaneous with chapter 6. So John writes, After this I saw four angels. Now, isn't this interesting that at this point we begin to focus on angels again at the beginning of chapter 6 as our Lord, the Lamb, opened the seals. Each of the first four seals have something to do with the four living creatures, a form of angelic being. And again, we come back to see the role of angels in uh, chapter 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, these are not the normal winds. Uh, These are winds related to divine judgment. And this is why they are going to be told to, uh, to continue to hold them back and not release them until the 144,000 are sealed. And then John says in verse 2, And I saw another angel, so this is a fifth angel, ascending from the rising of the sun, that would be in the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. That's what the releasing of these winds would do, uh, is harm the earth and the sea. And in verse 3, do, he said, the angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their uh, foreheads. Now, as we look at this verse, there's a couple of things we ought to comment on. First of all, in the first uh, clause, first um, uh, clause of verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. There are some who have attempted to uh, criticize uh, this verse as indicating some sort of pre-scientific uh, view of the earth as being flat or square or something like that whereas the term four corners of the earth is merely a term uh, like the rising of the sun or setting of the sun that we use every day. It's language of accommodation. We we talk about the sun rising, but we know it's the earth that's rotating. We talk about the sun setting, but we know that the earth is 
is uh, rotating. We know that it is not um, not the sun that is moving, but the earth that is moving. And so the four corners of the earth is a reference uh, most likely to the uh, four points on the compass, north, south, east, and west. Dr. Henry Morris, whose background was in uh, geology, he studied here at Rice Institute back in those days in the early 50s and then went on to Virginia Polytechnic Institute before he founded the Institute for Creation Research, has uh, written a number of, uh, uh, number of books, a vast number of books, one of which is on uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. And in his commentary called The Revelation Record, he writes, This verse has long been derided as reflecting a naive, pre-scientific concept of earth structure, one that supposedly viewed the earth as flat with four corners. In terms of modern technology, it is essentially equivalent to what a mariner or geologist would call the four quadrants of the compass or the four directions. This is evident also from the mention of the four winds, which in common usage would be, of course, uh, the north, west, south, and east winds. Parenthetically, accurate modern geodetic measurements in recent years have proved that the earth actually does have four corners. These are perturbances standing out from the basic geoid, that is, the basic spherical shape of the earth. The earth is not really a perfect sphere, but is slightly flattened at the poles. Its equatorial bulge is presumably caused by the earth's axial rotation, and its four corners uh, protrude from that. So that gives you a little interesting insight on the nature and structure of the earth. Now, as we look at this, go on through back to uh, verse 1. John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they are holding back these four winds. And the winds defined in judgment and in context relate to the judgment that God is going to bring about on the earth. Winds are often used in Scripture as a description of uh, divine judgment. God uses wind at times to bring about, uh, to bring about judgment. And so this is not talking about the normal wind, but it is talking about these winds of judgment. Now, the question is, is this occurring after the seals or before the seals? And I would argue that it happens at the same time or just preceding the seals because it's going to answer the question, who can survive this judgment? Well, who survives the judgment are those who are sealed, and that is who, who can uh, live through these judgments are those who are sealed. So it has to do with answering the question related to the judgments of those uh, initial six seals. So they're holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun having the seal of the living God. So this angel is going to be used to seal a certain number of individuals, Jewish individuals, for a specific purpose. And this seal is designed to protect them from these judgments because we know from later passages that 
some or many of these 144,000 will uh, be martyred during the tribulation period. So the purpose of the sealing is to protect them from these particular judgments. And so this angel cries out to the four to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. See, that relates to the judgment. And then uh, he calls on them not to harm the earth until, not to do anything, not to begin these judgments until these 144,000 have been sealed. This is the grace of God operating during the tribulation period. It is not a time simply of judgment. It is a time of grace and salvation for these 144,000 who are saved, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, become evangelists during the tribulation period, and it is through their witness and through their ministry that millions and millions of Jews and Gentiles will be saved. But it tells us that God is restoring his emphasis to Israel. It's not the church. And this must be interpreted literally. Now, of course, this raises several important issues we don't have time to get into this morning. We'll address next time related to the interpretation of these uh, uh, 144,000. Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Are they the lost? What about the lost tribes of Israel? And then the result of their ministry, which is the second part of the chapter, which has to do with the Gentiles, but never once do we see the term church here. It is through Israel once again. So that is going to tie back to the covenants that God has made with Israel. As Paul said in Romans 9.3, it's to Israel uh, that the covenants pertain, the promises. They are still Israel's. And so there is a returned emphasis uh, to Israel. But the emphasis here is on God's grace to the Jew first and also to the Gentile and there will still be millions who come to salvation during the tribulation period. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to uh, realize that even in the midst of judgment, your grace is acting, as it always has, because judgment on sin and evil is part of your plan, and that relates back to the original rebellion of Satan. And as we look around us and we see uh, the way things are in our world, we see the suffering, the pain, the horrors that take place even uh, in our time. We recognize that this is part of a broader plan and purpose and demonstrating uh, your glory, your perfection, and that the key element in all of the angelic conflict on which everything turns is your solution to the sin problem which occurred on the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. When he hung on the cross between heaven and earth and God the Father poured out upon him the sins of all mankind and he was judged for those sins, Jesus Christ had each one of our sins in mind. He had your sins in mind. He paid for your sins so that nothing else need be done other than to trust in him, to rely upon him. And with that simple act of trust, at that instant, God the Father gives you the righteousness of Christ. 
He imputes that to you. He gives you new life in Christ. You're regenerated, and you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. All that is necessary is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today, that our understanding of sin, evil, and suffering will conform to that which is revealed in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.